This morning we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now there are generally two ways to preach a sermon. You can preach a sermon deductively or inductively. Now in a deductive sermon, the preacher will tell you his main point right up front. Say, hey, this is, this is, this is the main point, and then deduce from the text the basis for this main point. And this is normally how Larry and I preach. An inductive sermon, the preacher will give you his main point at the end, towards the end. He'll induce from the text his main point. So progressively go through it and say, hey, this is the main point at the end. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Just want to give you a heads up from the top. My main point is going to come at the end. So we've been following the preacher of Ecclesiastes on his journey as he searches for meaning, as he, as he searches for understanding and significance in life. And he's found at every turn that life under the sun is vanity. It's meaningless. It's but a breath. Life under the sun is fleeting and elusive. But now and then we've seen some break, something break through the clouds. We've seen this acknowledgement of eternity and sovereignty and of something divine. We've seen calls to find significance in, in fearing God and enjoying the gifts He gives. Now in our most recent sermon, which would have been a couple weeks ago, or three weeks ago now, uh, the preacher makes a profound statement about the sovereignty of God, about His control over all things. Look at, the, at 7 verse 13. The preacher writes, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? He's in control of all things. Verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of, adver- in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The preacher concludes that that we are to be joyful in every situation because God's work is to be in control of every situation. We're to be joyful because he's in control. It's for God to know what each moment holds, so we are called to trust in him. Over the last several months, I've been going through with with my family, with my wife and kids, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And so a catechism is just a series of questions and answers that teach biblical truth, that teach theology and and doctrine. It's a tool for better understanding Scripture and and what we believe. It really seeks to apply Deuteronomy 6, where Moses calls Israel to diligently teach their children the Word of God. So this is just one way to do that. The Westminster Catechism was developed by a group of English pastors in the 1640s, almost 400 years ago. And we recently came to question 12. And question 12 is, what is God's providence? What is God's providence? And the answer, if you ask my kids, hopefully they would tell you, that God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature in every action. His completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing every creature in every action. This is a profound statement, and it's, it's comprehensive in its scope. It touches everything. God exercises control over everything in a holy, wise, and powerful way. But this can be, while we, while we say this, it can be an uncomfortable reality as we seek to reconcile this with the pain and the injustice that we experience in this world. And it seems that when we come to the preacher in chapter 7, verse 15, this is where he ends up. He isn't really content with the conclusion he's drawn. 
to be joyful because God's in control. It doesn't sit very easily with him. He has questions. He has many questions. And so he continues his search. He continues his search for meaning, for understanding. And this morning we're going to see what he finds. Now just as a reminder, like I said, this is going to be inductive. So we won't reach the main point until the end. But to give you something to grab onto as I go through, we're going to look at this. this the structure of the sermon will be to look at two obvious discoveries and then one remarkable answer. So three points. Two obvious discoveries, one remarkable answer. So obvious discovery number one. Life in this world is confounding. Life in this world is confounding. Now to confound is, is to confuse by going against expectations. We expect one thing and we get another and we're confounded. Life in this world is confounding. Read with me in verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Now this is an important verse for the, for the context of our passage, so we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking this verse. First, the preacher, he describes the context of his search. It takes, takes place in his, his vain life. This is that word that comes up again and again and again in Ecclesiastes. Now your, your Bible probably notes that, that this, this word right here, hebel is the Hebrew word, means vapor or a mere breath. The preacher is just brutally honest when he says in essence, in my breath of a life, I've seen everything. In my breath of a life, I have seen everything. And then he describes what he sees. A good man who dies in his goodness. And a bad man who lives in his evil. This is confounding. What's up with that? Isn't God the one who is, has said through Solomon, this is in Proverbs 10, verse 27 and 30, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. And here, the preacher is saying he's seen just the opposite. That's confounding. In a sense, he's, he's confronting his statement of God's sovereignty in verse 14 with two questions that all of, us, all of us have asked or will ask at some point. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Mark Twain, in his collection of short stories, illustrates the second question in his story that was originally titled The Story of the Bad Little Boy Who Led a Charmed Life. Now in this book, he describes a boy, in the story, he describes a boy named Jim. Twain writes that, that Jim's life was confounding. He was a bad boy, but things worked out for him. As a boy, he would climb the farmer's apple tree, go and steal his apples. And Twain describes that the limb didn't break. And he didn't fall and break his arm and get torn by the farmer's great dog and then languish on a sick bed for weeks and repent and become good. Oh, no. He stole as many apples as he wanted. And he came down all right. And he was all ready for the dog, too, and knocked him endways with a brick when he came near to tear him. Twain goes on to tell the time he stole the teacher's penknife and got away with it. He writes of him boating on a Sunday and not, getting, not drowning, of getting caught in a storm and not getting struck by lightning, of hitting his sister and not experiencing any consequences. Twain concludes this way. He says, And he grew up and married and raised a large family and brained them all with an axe one night. That means he killed them. And he got wealthy by all manner of cheating and rascality. And now he is the infernalist, wickedest scoundrel in his native village and is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. It's confounding. 
Here, Twain lays out for us this wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And this is what the preacher has seen. And he can't make sense out of it. Now, this is similar to the problem the psalmist confronts in Psalm 73, verse 3, when he writes, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We can all in some ways identify this as we see people who are, are doing evil. Their lives don't make sense, but they're enjoying it and they're doing well. Why do good things happen to bad people? Now, ultimately, the answer to this question is not as initially as important because it's not the one we normally ask. We're not normally asking why do good things happen to bad people. And we'll get to that in a few moments. But most of the time, the most pressing question, the one that is most often on our minds is, why do bad things happen to good people? This is what the preacher sees. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. In the 19th century, there lived a man by the name of Robert Murray McShane. Now, you may have heard of him because it's he who, who came up with the Bible reading plan where you read through the New Testament and Psalms twice in a year and the Old Testament once. So it's something that I think probably many of us in this room have done before, the McChain Bible reading plan. He was a prominent and influential Scottish pastor. He was prolific in his writing and in his preaching. His, he had this all-encompassing and glorious view of Christ that, that shaped men such as Martin Lloyd-Jones. For all of his influence and all of his gifting and seeming promise in ministry, it's confounding that Robert Murray, Robert Murray McShane died when he was 29. Or think of, think of Jim Elliott, the, the now-famed missionary who went to the jungles of Ecuador to proclaim the gospel to those who had never heard it before. Just three years after getting married, just one year after having his wife giving birth to their first child, he was murdered by, by the very people that he was trying to reach. He died at the age of 28. Church history is filled with stories like this. Godly men and women who seemingly perished in their righteousness far before their time. This is confounding. Just a week and a half ago while I was in Louisville, uh, one night Christine and I went out to dinner with uh, our good friend Becca Stevenson. Her husband Wade was killed in a car accident nearly two years ago. As we were talking, she was, she was telling us like, the struggle that it can be at times when she thinks about the last months and, and few years of his life. He had spent so much of his time reading and studying theology in order to prepare for ministry. Made sacrifices, and he was taking classes and at, this, at seminary, and he was hoping to go to the Sovereign Grace Pastors College at some point. And then he was killed in a car accident. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with many other stories like this. Our world is filled with, with the seeming tragedy of these untimely deaths. If we say that God is sovereign, then why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? On verse 16, the preacher counsels his listener. Since he has seen everything, he writes, Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now this is one of those verses that should make you do a double take if you're paying attention. Did he really just say that? Did he say don't be too righteous? Like, hey, do you know what? Just be a little righteous. That, that'll, that's fine. That's not exactly what he means by this. What the preacher is concerned about is those that are, that are overly righteous or, or super righteous. They place their hope in what they know and in how they act. And despite ever-mounting evidence to the contrary, our world is filled with people who think that if they just do the right thing, all will work out for them. The preacher is saying, if you do this, it, it, it's not going to add anything to your life. 
The preacher is not against pursuing righteousness. He is against pursuing righteousness for personal gain. One commentator puts it this way. He is against attempting to tie God's hands or open God's hands of blessing by our behavior. In verse 17, the preacher adds a complimentary thought. So, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? This counsel from the preacher, it's a bit more straightforward. He means what he says. Don't give yourself over to wickedness. Don't be a fool. While sometimes good things do happen to bad people, more often bad things happen to bad people. This is the normal way of life. As we mentioned earlier in Proverbs 10.27, the years of the wicked will be short. And this truth plays itself out around us time and time again. So the preacher here is condemning lawlessness, so rampant wickedness, and the super-righteousness, which is a, a religious arrogance that seeks to earn God's favor. And he concludes his counsel in verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now the this and the that of this verse is about not being lawless in verse 17 and not being super righteous, overly righteous in verse 16. He's saying, do not give yourself to either one. Do not give yourself to lawlessness or super righteousness. Commentator Doug O'Donnell helpfully summarizes his point. He says this, a saint or sinner can become a winner only by trusting in God alone. We are to grab hold of God, or better, we are to allow, to allow God to grab hold of us. The one who tremblingly trusts God worships him because he is worthy of our worship, regardless of the sweet or bitter providences that he brings into our lives. The preacher tells us that our call is just trust God. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? He says, Trust the one who has made the one as well as the other. This is wisdom, true wisdom. And so the preacher describes it for us in our next verse. Look at 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. There are all kinds of ways to be strong in our circumstances by making preparations for what's ahead, by preserving our sanity in the midst of suffering. But wisdom is ten times better. It's here that there's an abrupt change, though, in the preacher's flow of thought. And this brings us to obvious discovery number two. Obvious discovery number two, this world is filled with sinners. This world is filled with sinners. As the preacher lays out, wisdom sounds pretty great. Just now, he has said it is strong. In verse 12 of chapter 7, he describes wisdom as something that, that protects and preserves life. Who doesn't want to be wise? Protection, preservation, strength. It's a good thing. But if you count yourself as one of the wise, don't think of yourself as too wise, as the preacher wrote in verse 16. Why? Well, look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even the wise of this world, they're still sinners. Solomon himself, the man with more wisdom than any other in his day, said, as he dedicated the temple to the Lord in 1 Kings 8, he says, there is no one who does not sin. Around 200 years later, the prophet Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That, that everyone there, that includes everybody. Everybody. 
Then more than 700 years after that, Paul uses Ecclesiastes 7.20 when he writes Romans 3. And he says, none is righteous. No, not one. Yes, lest there be any doubt, the preacher of Ecclesiastes and the preacher that's standing in front of you, and more importantly, the God who authored this book, is saying that every one of us is a sinner. That the world is filled with sinners. Then the preacher, he pulls out just one example of our sinfulness in the next two verses. Look at verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He points to our, our tongue. Now this is, this is like the smallest part of our body, yet it brings God's wrath upon our heads. Jesus tells the people in Mark 7 that it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. One example, just one example of the universal unrighteousness of humanity is found in what we say and just looking to our tongue. James in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 of his letter, he writes that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now in light of this reality, it's remarkable how easily offended we can be at the things that others say. We're quick to read into why someone says something, and we take these things to heart. It happens with our coworkers and our friends and our children and our spouses. It happens in the context of the church. We allow what someone says, whether it be right or wrong, to shape our thoughts about reality and about them and about ourselves. And the preacher here, he, he calls us to forbear with others, to be patient with others in this confounding world. So yes, this world is confounding. Everyone's unrighteous. So forbear. Forbear with one another. Wisdom says, trust God and forbear with those around us. So now we get to verse 23, and the preacher, he's, he's testing his theory. He says this, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. So he identifies what wisdom looks like amidst the injustice and the confounding nature of the world. And he finds that he can't be wise. It's, it is far from him, as he says. He goes on in verse 24. That which has been far off, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? You see, there's this frustration expressed here by the preacher. He, there's this pain. He, he gives himself to finding wisdom. He spent himself to finding wisdom, testing wisdom, walking through life by wisdom. And he can't do it. We'll hear this frustration often expressed in, in things like sports and politics. Think of the, the NCAA tournament that just took place or various elections that took place across our country in November. Scores of people gave of their, their time, their energy, their resources with one goal. And they found that ultimately they came up short. For many, it was, it was just far from them, too far off. Now that heartbreak in sports and in politics, it's even more devastating in life. Wisdom, the key to understanding and being able to navigate this world, it's too far from the pre preacher. And so he is, he is hopeless. Who can find it out? So the search goes on. Look at verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. The preacher here, he intensifies his search. Over these last few verses, we will see him searching desperately and finding out certain things. 
But let's recognize first what he's in search of. First, he's looking for wisdom. He's, he's turned his heart to seek wisdom. And then there's this phrase, the scheme of things. He's turned his heart to seek the scheme of things. Now, this really just means the sum of the matter. He wants to find wisdom in order to know how it all adds up, how to make sense out of life. And then the second thing he's in search of is the opposite of this wisdom. He describes it as the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He wants to know how this wickedness and folly fit into the scheme of things. He sets himself out on a lofty search. So buckle up as we look at the results of this search. Verse 26, And I find something more bitter than death, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. His first finding is more bitter than death, this, this woman. Now hold up. Like, is he some kind of woman hater? Like, what is up with this? Remember with me for a second the nature of this book. Now, while most commentators agree that it's unlikely that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, it does seem that the preacher borrowed heavily from the life of Solomon. It's as, in one sense as if he is speaking with the voice of Solomon through his instruction. So with that in mind, think about what Solomon writes in Proverbs. In the first number of chapters, the first several chapters, all the way through chapter 9, Solomon is introducing us to these two women, two women, one good and one bad, one named wisdom, the other named folly. So lady wisdom, good, lady folly, bad. In chapter 9, wisdom calls out to the simple, calling them to leave their simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. She calls out, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret. This is Lady Folly calls out, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Solomon continues, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Earlier in Proverbs 7, Solomon gives a longer description of the ways of this woman. She's out and about. She's flirting with others. She's dressing provocatively. She's after a forbidden intimacy that her heart craves. In Proverbs 7.21 we read, With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. This is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is describing as more bitter than death. This woman whose heart is snares and nets. Now he's not saying that all womankind is as bitter as death. It's this woman that consumes rather than loves. Now it would be easy for me to just want to pass over this verse and the implications of this verse. It would be easy to assume, for me to assume or for you to assume that you know this doesn't have anything to do with you, man or woman because I don't know any women that are snares and nets. But this is a book unlike any other book. Not just Ecclesiastes, the whole thing. This is the Word of God. And we don't choose what we want to hear. God chooses what we need to hear. And today, in His wisdom, He wants us to reflect on this reality. He wants, to heed, he wants us to heed this warning. So, for you, perhaps you've been spending a little more time with that, that coworker. Or you've been getting back in touch with that old friend. Maybe you've been drawn to social media and have been following or, or stalking people that make your heart beat a little faster. Or maybe you're, you're buying into the lies of the world around us. The world tells us that if we just get that one more thing, we'll have enough. Or the world tells us that, that what we do with our bodies, what we do with our minds, and what we do with our eyes, 
that it's up to us. The world tells us that what goes on between two consenting adults is, is never a problem. The world tells us that what we do in the name of pleasure is always acceptable. The world tells us that the love that matters most is the love we have for ourselves. And these ideas and the people behind these ideas, they're snares and nets. That man or woman that you've been flirting with is a deep pit. And you will fall into it. The preacher writes, He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So brothers and sisters, flee temptation. The preacher's search continues. Look with me at the beginning of verse 28. Actually, let's go to 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have, I have not found. Now, in light of what he's just said about the woman with a heart that snares and nets, now he really sounds like a woman hater. It's like, I have found, all these, I have found a righteous guy, but I can't find a righteous woman. Now, there are very ex- various explanations for what exactly the preacher means here. But I think it's just most helpful to view this as hyperbole. It's this great exaggeration in order to make his point. So what's his point? That there's not one righteous woman? No, no, that's not his point. Understood in the context of Solomon's life, this, this takes on new significance. If you remember, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It says in 1 Kings 11, And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God. So Solomon had these 1,000 women, and they turned away his heart from the Lord. Then what does he say about men? Well, he says that they're one-tenth of one percent better. One-tenth of one percent. In sum, he's saying, to find someone with true wisdom is like finding a needle in a haystack. It's, it's like one in a million. That's what he's saying. So the preacher concludes with this crucial finding, this, this ultimate finding in verse 29. See this alone, I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is what he's left with. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now this points us back to the creation of mankind in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1.27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. God, the one who is whole in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness and truth. This God made man in his image as a reflection of his perfection and his glory. He made man upright. This is ultimately what the preacher finds. How does he make sense out of this confounding world? He trusts God. He forbears with others, with the sinners around him. And he knows that God is not responsible for the sin of man. God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes. Now the Bible traces these schemes. First, think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Scheming to become like God, they eat of the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then they're kicked out of the garden and their descendants scheme to attain greatness. And they go and build cities and care for flocks and develop art. And in Genesis 6, 5, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what does God do? He sends a flood. He wipes out mankind, all except for one faith-filled yet alcohol-prone man with his family. 
but their offspring go on scheming as well. This time they build a tower as a monument to humanity's greatness. They will build it, as Genesis 11.4 says, with its top in the heavens. And they say, let us make a name for ourselves. But I love the very next verse when it's recorded, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. So much greater and bigger is God that he had to come down to see the great tower with its top in the heavens. The Lord comes down, he sees the wickedness and disperses the people. Now all of this scheming, and we haven't even reached the Abraham, the scheming moon worshiper. Now indeed, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So what hope do we have in life under the sun, in life in this confounding world full of sinners? It just doesn't make sense. What answer do we have? Brothers and sisters, this, this passage, it cries out for an answer. And this brings us to our remarkable answer. And our remarkable answer is Jesus Christ. This is the third point. Our remarkable answer, Jesus Christ. We have our answer in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer for us in a confounding world filled with sinners. Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is himself wisdom, he is the answer for us as we live life in this confounding world. Look back at this passage with, with a Christ-tinted perspective. Look at verse 15. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. Who in all of history fits that description better than anyone else? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He never sinned. No deceit was in his mouth. He never spoke an angry or an impatient word. He never looked at someone with lust in his heart. He, he was never angry at anyone. He lived his life perfectly. Yet here was a man with an untimely death. The divine king of kings, clothed in human flesh, was killed in his early 30s. We just saying, come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never stain nor trace of sin what we were just singing about. He was the righteous one who died in his righteousness. Why do bad things happen to good people? The preacher writes in verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is. There is a righteous man on earth who did good and never sinned. That man was Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus himself, the embodiment of wisdom. Wisdom himself. He is the one man who does good and never sins. He is the one in who every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, as Hebrews says, yet without sin. There is a righteous man who has done good and never sins. And here is the great mystery of grace as Paul writes for us in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now as we've already seen, we are all unrighteous. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But for those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, the sinless sinfulness of man has been replaced by the righteousness of Christ. Charles Wesley wrote, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. 
alive in Him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. This is who we are in Christ. We're clothed in His righteousness. So bold we approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ, my own. Church, when we look at this confounding world, and we look at the sovereignty of God, we too often ask the wrong question. We, we can see the most important question is, why does bad things happen to good people? But if we really understand what we mean when we say that God is sovereign, the question that we must be asking is, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we are bad people. There is no one righteous. And God knows us. He knows the depth of our sin. He knows our sin better than we know our sin. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. He knows our actions. All of them. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God the holy, sovereign, all-powerful one. He knows all of this. And he knows how we make a mockery of him through our pride and our selfishness and our, our lust and our anger. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, we receive mercy and grace that cleanses us from our sins and gives us a righteous claim before God. And this, this takes place on the cross. This play, takes place on the cross. And, and if you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Today can be a day of salvation for you. Turn to Him and trust in Him and receive the mercy and grace that are yours through Him. Repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. We're going to sing in a little bit of Him. It's written in 1995, recently. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But take heart, brothers and sisters. His dying breath has brought us life. And we know that it is finished. Why do good things happen to bad people? It makes no sense. Because there's nothing in you and there's nothing in me that makes us deserving recipients of this grace. The only explanation is more grace. There's no human answer. And this can leave us feeling like the preacher. This wisdom is far from us. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Or as Paul exclaims in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. While the preacher goes on his quest to understand and make sense of these great questions of providence... We have the answer we need in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer for us in a confounding world filled with sinners. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Now in just a few moments, we're going to take together the Lord's Supper. And this meal remembers Christ's work on our behalf. It highlights both His righteous obedience and our deserved punishment. We are all sinners. We are unrighteous people. And this meal reminds us of this truth. It's our bodies that deserve to be broken. It's our blood that should be shed. But Jesus Christ has died in our place. Let me close with this quote from Doug O'Donnell. Thankfully, Ecclesiastes 7.29 
is not the final word in the Bible. Christ Jesus came into the world. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The cross covers our sin. The Spirit raises us to new life. And the Lord of all wisdom will come again in glory to judge the wicked and grant the righteous long, long life, eternal life. Jesus Christ is God's answer to the scheme of things. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Oh, Father, thank You that You have come into this world and You were the righteous One who never sinned. You lived the life that, that we could not live because there is no one righteous that walked this earth but You. Not only did You live that life, that righteous life, but You died in our place. You took on flesh. Your body was broken for us. You suffered for us. Your blood was shed for us. You faced God's wrath for us. And it's because of this that we have hope. That we have hope as we face life in a confounding world. Life that many times perplexes us and doesn't make sense. Lord, and may we hope in You. Even when our hope is fainting, may we hope in You. As we look to Jesus Christ, the answer to life in a confounding world. It's in His name we pray. Amen.